The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? Starting in 1997, the long-running James Bond movie machine began to falter, and by 2002, the movies were performing badly enough to warrant the full Daniel Craig reboot. It is possible this was entirely due to the movies being... not great. But it's also true that three movies released during this period demonstrated that audiences might be in the mood for some grittier and more grounded material in the spy action genre. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. The three movies that I personally attribute to the hastening of Old Bond's demise are Mission Impossible, Ronin, and The Bourne Supremacy. We're going to discuss the second of these, a John Frankenheimer-directed thriller starring Robert De Niro in this episode of Spies Like Us. This time we got a 1998 film, uh, contemporary in its events, uh, features characters that are most defined by the agencies they used to work for, including the CIA, KGB, the British SAS, also some characters that are active IRA operatives, and what the hell, a bit of Russian mafia sprinkled in. Uh, Directed by John Frankenheimer and has Robert De Niro headlining the cast, uh, look at this, man. I swear, ever since ever since Battle of Algiers came into our lives, I'm seeing it everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Frankenheimer, the director, uh, says, Wiki says he employed a hyper-realistic aesthetic in his films to make them look realer than real because reality by itself can be very boring. And he credited Guillaume Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers with inspiring his style. He considered it flawless and more influential than any other he had seen. So yeah, directors, they love that movie. Yeah, apparently. I brought. I talked to my mom about us doing that, and she had said, oh yeah, when that was out, that was big. We all, we all got everybody together and went inside a couple times. And I was like, what, really? Hmm. I, I didn't realize how big of a film that was. Awesome. Um, I had a quick note. You know, the credits in this movie... Uh, just interesting that they, I feel like they kind of are trying to uh, be reflective of like an, a much older movie. Like, I feel like the credits are like 60s, 70s kind of style. Just interesting. Um, well, a lot, of the, a lot of the dialogue felt like, you know, I remember saying that when we were watching. It felt like those older movies, like a 70s kind of action film. Or, you know, like in the 70s had really well-written scripts. Oh, yeah. You know, but they had that kind of weird dialogue where it advanced from like, you know, the classic films where everything was super on the nose, but it was still kind of an odd pacing. It kind of felt like that throughout the whole movie. I think you start seeing some, some naturalistic dialogue start to develop in that period. Um, I feel like the cop movies in the seventies, people, they started like trying to talk more like real cops instead of cartoon cops. Yeah they, uh, <laughs> yeah, they broke away from the cartoon characters. A uh, lot of notes on the cast this time around. Uh, starting with De Niro, this is like one of the last films before what people regard as his slump period in the early 2000s, uh, where he kind of started doing some comedies and 
some some kind of weird roles that weren't really my favorites personally. I guess I'm not the only one. Uh, De Niro is a repeat visitor to the podcast, having also appeared in The Good Shepherd. That he directed. Still my favorite spy film. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, what's her first name? Isn't it Natasha? I just wrote McElhone. Yeah, Natasha McElhoney is also a repeat visitor because she was the ballerina in the company. Yeah. Uh, turns out she's not Irish after all. Uh, they had a voice coach on set to help her out with that. Could have fooled me. I mean, I'm not Irish, but I like the accent quite a bit. Yeah. Kind of thick, very sexy. Um, <laughs> I actually kind of low-key low think she's one of the best parts of the movie. I didn't always feel that way, but now having seen it again after a long time, um, I, I really think she's part of the thing that makes it rewatchable. She's right. pretty good in it. Yeah, she was great. She, yeah, yeah. I think she did great in it. She put Lonsdale were the highlights of the film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She puts up with a ton of mansplaining and having her authority questioned left and right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which I I like. I like the way she reacts to it in the movie. Like she's the job is important enough that she's going to grit her teeth and just get through it. Another repeat visitor, Jean Renault who is also in La Femme Nikita, and Lonsdale becomes our first three-peat for the podcast. Yeah! <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Turns out Sean Bean's characters tend to almost always die. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's like a meme. He survives this movie. Um, mm. But yeah, in 2019, he said he's going to start rejecting scripts where he dies. He's done with it. <laughs> Well, I mean, he was in Lord of the Rings and dies. He was in Game of Thrones and he dies. James Bond and he dies. You know, so I think he's tired of it at this point. Um, but he wasn't the only Game of Thrones star. We got Jonathan Price. That was a lot of fun to see him. He is a fantastic actor. Right. Jonathan Price uh, worked with three of the other people in Ronin, all in different movies. Uh, he... Both him and Skarsgård are in Pirates of the Caribbean. You remember the oh. bootstrap Bill character? Oh, really? Will Turner's <laughs> dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that was cool to note. Um, you just mentioned Game of Thrones. Price is in that with Sean Bean. Yep. And way back in the day, Robert De Niro and Jonathan Price were both in uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, that's right. Robert De Niro was the cable guy. Right. Oh, my God. I totally forgot about that. And Jonathan Price was also in uh, that new Don Quixote movie. So he he's, he's must be a favorite of Terry Gilliam. Wow. I totally forgot about that. Oh, that's a, that's a nice tidbit there. So, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't realized it was Skarsgård in in parts of the Caribbean. You know, he's under all that makeup. Uh, I also was uh, interested to note he was the guy that played Boris in Chernobyl, where he looks very oh, yeah. different. Yeah. And, no, that, uh, was, that was great. Yeah. And he is going to be Baron Harkonnen in the upcoming Dune movie, which sounds like really good casting to me. Right. <laughs> Another reason to get excited about Dune. Uh, Skip Suddeth, the guy that, you know, nobody's really ever heard of 
he's, he still gets a note here. Um, he specifically requested it. He said he wanted to do his own driving stunts, or at least most of them. And Frankenheimer said, go for it. I just don't want to see any brake lights. <laughs> nice. And there is some crazy driving in this movie. They destroyed 80 automobiles in order to make this film. Uh, Did that beat the Blues Brothers record? I know Blues Brothers has been beaten, but Blues Brothers had the biggest, the most car wrecks in any film, and they held that record forever. I don't know. I don't know. Good good thing to look up. But uh, a lot of these weren't just cars that they crashed, because all of the main cars, I guess they actually, like, cut them in half uh, so that they had uh, versions that they could... um, like tow along and have the camera crew, I guess, in positions where it would be difficult to get the camera crew into. Otherwise, uh, you said you, I, I remember you pointed out at one point in the film, you said, Oh, that's sped up. And it oh, yeah. is yeah. <laughs> true. They sped up a couple parts, but mostly it's not. In fact, it was a really high priority to not speed up the film. Um, they are actually, these actors are getting driven around by professional Grand Prix drivers at over a hundred miles an hour in these. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, crazy. The, uh, car chases are a big part of this movie. Um, they're extremely well regarded in cinematic history. In fact, they, uh, this movie hits a lot of top 10 best car chase movies of all time lists. Uh, the one that annoyed me, I guess the final one, uh, uh-huh. where like halfway through, I was like, Jesus, I, at this point, I, I'm starting to forget what this movie's about. Yeah, um, we both were like exhausted at that point. It was it was silly. It, it, it just went on forever. Yeah, I think it's it was like it was like an embarrassment of riches. Too much of a good thing. Uh, right. <laughs> and I don't think I don't think audiences would care for uh, car chases of that length any longer i clocked it dude it is actually 10 fucking minutes long oh geez which no is, wonder we were like done which we were is so done what i said as a joke yeah <laughs> but i went i went back and checked and uh yeah 10 minutes but we're not here to talk about car chases no we're gonna talk we're about sweet tradecraft yep <laughs> retinal scan complete Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Uh, one of the things I really liked about the film was just like how nobody ever answers questions directly, which establishes them as like veteran spies. You know, that's true. I, there I, is a lot of like, uh, like someone, like someone asks a question and the the answer they get is like. That they someone's just they just start talking about something else, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's very well done because it's very natural. Um, and I think you had said uh, that one of your favorites is when they asked like uh, Robert De Niro, like, "Have you ever killed anybody?" And what, what was his response? I I hurt someone's feelings once. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's got he's got a few really good singers. Yeah, uh, he's, he's got. Some I think that's my favorite though. Yeah. Was that Sean Bean that asked him? Yep. Okay. That I really wanted to talk about. 
uh, because there are a lot of moments, you know, like, like I talk about a, a, like body language or interrogation. It's not about like one thing, it's clusters. And when Robert De Niro kind of like lets the cat out of the, or like basically calls Sean Bean about his inexperience, I, I really wanted to point out that question. Like that's not somebody, that's not a question a seasoned like spy would ask. That's like something somebody that's like never killed somebody would ask. Right. Have you, you ever killed somebody? <laughs> yeah, so. for sure. Um, the whole Sam and Spence thing, I think, is a little overcooked. I I oh. enjoy it. I enjoy it. I think Sean Bean's performance is really good here. As oh, absolutely. Yeah. A guy that is clearly cloaking his nervousness with uh, some false bravado. And, um, Absolutely. you know, uh, I really love, because I know the feeling, I mean, not exactly, because I've never gone into these kind of situations, but I kind of know that feeling, you know, where he's like, let's just get it. Done. All right, right. Let's just do it and get it done. We'll just, <laughs> right. we'll just yeah. do it, you know, because he, he doesn't yeah. want to sit there and, and be with his fear and acknowledge right. his fear. He just wants to, like, you know, just rip the bandage off. Um, pretty, pretty good stuff. I kind of felt like Sam went out, went at him a little hard at first. Right. Uh, but you know, clearly with the whole, you know, ambush thing and the snipers on the opposite side, it's like, you know, guy doesn't know what he's doing and he just needs to shut up at that point. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, before that, we, you know, we start with that extended scene where we've got Sam showing up at the diner where they're kind of gathering up most of the people. Um, I, I mean, I like because I'm supposed to like the, the, you know, him hiding his gun in the back and unlocking the back door and stuff. But sometimes when I see stuff like that, too, I'm like, you know, like... In movies, like, the the actor's excessive preparation always pays off. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you know, what if they had left in the front? What do you say, like, oh, okay, I got I to gotta be right back? Or, right. Or do you just not have a gun now? <clears throat> right. Well, they probably, I don't know, they probably, well, maybe it's, like, bad tradecraft to, like, go out the front because now you got, like, 10 dudes, well, like with seven or eight dudes just who came in differently. Who, like, if they're being watched, it's just a bad idea, I guess. Well, and they shouldn't have, and then, yeah, that's right. They pull up with a van in the alley and they all get in. So, presumably, it's probably a test for them. Like, if they all go out in the front, he's probably going to leave the job. Oh, okay. They, like, you guys don't know what the fuck you're doing, <laughs> you know? And then the fact that, like, there's a black van in the back. And he makes that line, like, where, like, you know, she's like, you know, well, why are you getting the van? Where are you saying, like, or when she sees him with the gun, he's like, she's like, oh, what's that? And he's like, oh, I, I want to be prepared for things, you know, whatever. And she's like, well, why are you getting the van? And he's like, well, I, I, I already answered that question. You know, like, he already he doesn't want to get into situations where uh, he can't get out of. So he's got to prepare for those moments. And so now he has his strap and he's getting in the van. And, you know, it's it's an excuse for the line, which sets up, which is nice. I mean, that is a nice thing when you you tell the audience one thing about a character, 
right at the beginning of meeting him that is one thing that is also like really all you need to know about them. And he sums right. it up with, you know, lady, I never walk into a situation I don't need know how to walk out of. Yeah. Which <laughs> Robert Roger Ebert maybe unfairly quipped that then he spends the rest of the movie walking into situations he doesn't know how to walk out of. I don't think that was fair. Right. No. Especially with the big twist at the end. We 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 know that he does have outs and people he knows and all over the place, so yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a fair statement, considering everything going on. David, you've been critical of uh, of characters' choices of base of operations in the past. Yes. How, how do you feel about this warehouse? I like it. It's 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 not as good as our uh, a most wanted man, where we have no idea where they are and there's no windows. <clears throat> um, you know, so it's nice that they have a spot that they can't look at, but like you look at it and it's not like it's an unassuming place. And that's kind of a place you would want. So I think it's a good spot. Yeah. It looks like probably not ideal in a abandoned industrial zone. Not, not, not many people poking around there. That's yeah. I'm cool with that. Um, I like also, I like the idea the, the way the film is done where they have like uh, incomplete information, uh-huh. um, but they're going to start making the plan based on what they know so far. Of course, I mean, some people like have questions about that and we get a lot of prodding at Deidre of like, you know, well, how many guys, how do you know how many guys, how do you right. know this? Where did this come from? And um, But I do give it plus spy points and the number three best tradecraft for the idea because the situation could come up in the field where you don't know everything now, but mm-hmm. you will know it by the day, and you're just going to base your plan around what you know so far, which is five to eight men, two to three cars, and, um, you know, just be up front that we're going to have to improvise. Yeah, and that's a good one because <clears throat> most of these guys don't know each other, other than like, you know, uh, like they, you know, other than like the IRA peeps, and like these are seasoned people. Other than you know Sean Bean's character, they're all veterans, so they're gonna be poking around just to kind of like gauge them. We get that cool coffee cup moment, you know. So it, it's it. I I, I like that it kind of. Um, like certifies this team like these these aren't like rookies you know uh robert de niro's character is supposedly like retired cia so it's you you don't live that long in that world without like kind of reducing the risk you know by gaining more information and reducing uncertainty you know so i i i think that was really good so definitely a good choice for a best tradecraft you mentioned the coffee cup, the reflex check on Gregor, which is neat. Like a lot of this movie, it's neat, but yeah, <laughs> you know, it's more it's more cool than necessary or kind of justifiable. Um, yeah. Like I I don't get why Sam is uh, reflex checking this guy in particular. Yeah, and he's the tech guy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Well, for a tech guy on the road in the field, you kind of want to make sure he can, you know, move. But why 
why him specifically? Yeah. But yeah, you're right. It is cooler than necessary. And it, and it goes back to the feel of the old seventies kind of pacing, I guess. If I were to put a theory out there, I would say, well, Sam CIA, he sees that this guy's Russian. Maybe he has glued onto the idea that this guy's a tech guy, but Hey, let's see if I can figure out if he's ex KGB. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, that would be, that would be like the number one, you know, of all the people in the room, I guess, you know, no, knowing or not knowing what you do about their nationalities and their pasts and past experiences. I think a CIA guy, especially on the operation that Sam's on the knowing or at least being able to deduce a high probability that someone is ex-KGB or even could be secretly current KGB because... Well, considering the big twist at the end, that's, yeah, that's right. Right, right, right. The box, yeah. Okay, so before the box, before the box, let's just, let's just put a pin in the, the idea that this team of... People that don't know each other, I don't think this is how you do it in in real life at all. I was really looking forward to, we almost had a guest on the show who actually might have been able to shed some light on this. Uh, I know that people with military and intelligence backgrounds often go into private work as mercenaries. Um, but I question the IRA's wisdom in choosing to go this route and also that they're using basically none of their own guys. I, I, I mean, like if you're desperate for what they're looking for, you don't really want to risk your guys and considering the timing, they might not have the numbers that the IRA would have, you know, previously. And even considering the old IRA, apparently there was like two IRAs. I like learned this after watching Peaky Blinders. They kept talking about the IRA and I was like, has the IRA really been around that long? And and apparently there was like a revival when like you know when we would remember like in the nineties where there was like the terrorist actions or whatever. Oh, okay. But there there was apparently an older one. And at this point, I think audiences would have considered the IRA like like super serious threat. Uh, but I think at the timing of the release it wouldn't have been. I'm not. I'm not sure. I should look into that. But I remember being like pretty young when uh, it was like world news uh, that it was like a big issue. I don't know. Uh, I didn't do my homework on this one, but I, I will say, uh, yeah, definitely. A lot of people will go into private work. Um, I know for sure. Like after reading Snowden's book, that the one a lot of them would start in private work right after getting their security clearance, or that private work is used as a cover. So it's a lot of this is not that unbelievable, but yeah, you're right about it being weird that the IRA would hire these guys unless they didn't want to risk their people. But where would the funds come from? I don't know. Those are some really good questions. Like, okay. I don't think we get a lot of evidence in the film to kind of, for instance, uh, our guy, um, Richard Dreyfus hired in, uh, let's see, what's the movie red. You know, right. he, he hired a, a private South African hit team, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and there's reason, f- the reason he's doing that is to keep his hands clean. 
and his right. involvement clean. But, you know, like these, these people should be, I, I think they should in reality be able to find five people that have worked together in the past. <laughs> right. That, that would be better. Which we're going to find out would have been well, because if, there's a betrayal. If you're trying to keep a distance between the IRA and they're trying to get this box, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess they don't want uh, the world intelligence organizations to know about the box. I would presume the five eyes are active at this point, right? That's even that's I think that even makes it sillier because if your idea is to reduce exposure, what you've done here is you've brought in, you've brought five people together that all have connections. I mean, just because they're retired doesn't mean they don't still talk to their friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. And talk yeah, to people. Well, so you've, you've brought five people from five different intelligence agencies around mm. the world. I think you've increased your exposure, not reduced it. Oh, and, the, and it's pretty well known at the beginning that uh, Deidre and Sean Bean and other guy are IRA. No, right. Sean, Sean Bean is SAS. He's British. Oh, that's right. He's British, that's not right. Irish. But it's clear. Deidre's running the op, and she's IRA active. She's not, like, saying I'm ex-IRA. And Correct. We're just trying to get this to make some money. The IRA obviously wants it for a purpose, and it's probably some amount of terrorism. So that's kind of minus spy points for even letting that out if you try realistically want the distance between the IRA obtaining this package that shouldn't even be information. Like it should just be like, Hey, we're hiring you to accomplish this, accomplish the thing. Who are you? Don't worry about it. I'm paying you, you know? Um, uh, actually like maybe I should talk like, uh, I think it was my number three best trade craft was keeping, um, you know, price like, secret like no one knew who the real handler was it was just Deidre's the contact she's managing the team um you know and it kept distance and I really liked the distance between that you know this goes back to our battle of Algiers thing with the the cells you know you want to compartmentalize everything so that information isn't uh available um so I I kind of want to say the Worst part of that is even bringing up IRA and to begin with. I mean, it's not really that important for the story, but I don't think it's good op. I should probably change my worst tradecraft to that one. That one's pretty bad. I mean, the you know you could say the movie title tells you it all that this is the core conceit of the movie and of mm-hmm. the script as it's conceived. So I don't want to go too hard on it, but I also just don't want to like let it off the hook. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Hire an outside team. That's fine. But, you know, don't hire a, an outside team of a bunch of people that have never worked together. Uh, it's, 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 well, that goes back to the distance thing. I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like reservoir dogs. You don't want people who know, like, you know, you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket and you're hiring mercenaries and them all not knowing each other kind of keeps them at odds with each other and on their toes and not worried about you. But like, why even bring up that you're IRA? Well, she doesn't, she never, she never does. You know, when Sean, Sean Bean says, and what can we infer from your charming Irish lilt? And she says, anything you like. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, she doesn't she doesn't tell him who she is. Um, oh, okay. Well, that's that that kind of plays into the distancing thing, I guess. We actually, I mean, we we strongly suspect, but we actually don't even we don't find out for sure until the very end of the movie, the very end. Okay. Um, One thing that's weird is why would the Russians and the IRA want the same box? And we we never actually find out what's in the box. We get like a whole Pulp Fiction thing going on. It, um, is, it is a pure MacGuffin, for right. sure. Um, contents contents unknown, and for some reason, both the IRA and the Russian Mafia prize it highly. And for some reason, it's something also that the CIA doesn't really care about, we find out at the end. So kind of right. difficult to imagine what that could be, except maybe just something incredibly valuable. Because, you know, the IRA always wants funds. Russian mafia just loves money. Uh, so I don't think it's something strategically important. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, Sam would want the box. Instead, he turns out at the end of the movie, he really doesn't care about the box. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you know, just, just to, to tie that in a knot a little, uh, I think the team is silly. I think the box is clearly silly, but this movie is essentially like people doing very serious, like they're doing very silly things in an extremely serious and realistic fashion is how I would sum this movie up. If someone asked like, well, how realistic is it? I would say, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you're not if you're not thinking too hard yeah you might you might say it's highly realistic but uh you know the the un, like it's it's got a very shaky foundation is all I'll say yeah. it's a very well built house on a shaky foundation that's true yeah the uh the other thing about the box okay so like and and its value um you know, at, at one point, like, okay, so Sam is asking all these questions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, other people are asking questions, but he's the one that's really prying around the edges and trying to figure out, like, what the hell's going on. And at one point, like, when he decides that he's really dissatisfied with uh, how they're going about it, you know, and, and the amount of information that they're going to have to plan the op with, uh, he negotiates, he hard negotiates like a five times pay raise because originally I guess they were all going to get a total of 40,000. Mm-hmm. Now he wants 200,000. That's a big, that's a big raise in pay. Um, well, this is after our favorite scene that we'll get to in a little bit, but uh, he realizes the risk like shot through the roof and that they're getting underpaid. And she agrees very quickly after her phone call. And this really adds to his cover that he's in it for the money. Okay. it. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it helps his cover. Um, I don't think it plays well to his overall ambition, his, his secret real motivation, which is to nail Seamus. Uh, you know, playing this kind of hardball with the price could... I feel like really easily could have backfired, and I'll call it my worst tradecraft number three. You know, because I'm I'm looking at it, and I feel like he's he's doing the thing that his. You're right. He's doing the thing that his cover identity would do, 
but he's mm. not doing the thing that his real objective would be served by. That's that's, no, that's a good point. Um, but I don't know. Like it's it, it it really sells the the lust for money, but it also kind of like if she said no, he could have stayed. I don't think she would have kicked him out. Do you think? I don't know. But it, it is a big it is a big what if. I don't think he gets it is it is it is a big what if. I, I, I don't think he I don't think he benefits nearly as much as he risks by playing hardball on the price. That's that's where I'll stand on that. Okay. And then also to remember, you know, and these are things the movie is like hoping you won't pay attention to, but this is what I like to do. I like to try to see like, you know, I'm like, you know, why I watch spy movies like I'm watching a magic act. Yeah, you right. Know? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I, and it's not that, like, trying to see, like, where the misdirections are, it doesn't, uh-huh. it doesn't reduce my enjoyment of the movie. It actually kind of improves it. And it's just fun to do. And I think that's what this podcast is all about. Um, so I also went in and, and was thinking, you know, like, okay, so now that the, uh, the pay has been quintupled, uh, yeah. It's difficult to imagine how much Gregor, our Stellan Skarsgård character, is expecting to get paid uh, by continuing the betrayal. Like after the Russians like double or try to double cross him, he says, "Fuck you! My price just went up. I'm tripling my price now." Now, so starting with he was going to get 40k for doing the job. That was the initial offer. At this point, we're up to six hundred thousand, right? A fifteen times difference. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you know, since money was his motive, it's also just like a, a, a loose floorboard in the plot where all of a sudden now he's you know because of Sam he's going to get five times what he originally contracted for. Maybe that should have been enough for him to say, okay, well, fuck it. I'm, I was planning on betraying you guys all, but now that I'm getting two hundred thousand, I think I'll just, <laughs> I think I'll just settle for that and do it the easy way instead right? of the incredibly hard way. Right? Yeah. Um, well, if he's ex KGB and this is the Russians are trying to get it, well, oh, the Russian mafia. It's the mafia. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not the state service. So he really is in it for the money. Yeah, That's for sure. For sure. So he's not he's not doing it for the homeland or whatever. That, yeah, that's silly. It's a little, That's a big risk. It's a, Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I mean, well, and actually, I mean, he's expecting not not to get 600. Well, so he's expecting to get more than 200,000 by betraying the team. Obviously, it's got to be enough more than 200000 to justify all the extra risk and extra danger to his life and all the ways that it could go, the increased number of ways it could go wrong with his mm-hmm. betrayal than it could go without his betrayal. So, I don't know. That would I would think would have to be at least twice that. So now we're up at, to four hundred k, and now when he says he's tripling his price, now we're up to around like a million two hundred thousand. Right. And the movie started with forty thousand <laughs> as right. an offer. So I don't know. Just somebody's not doing the math. 
Uh, yeah. They're just they're just writing cool lines. That uh, well, he was probably planning on betraying them the whole time, especially with some of the shots we get at the beginning. Like, ah, we don't like this guy. This guy's gonna be a problem later. Um, yeah, that is weird. Hmm. I'll jump ahead too and say that when I do, you know, since we're talking about the the value of the box and how much they're getting offered, uh, I'll jump ahead to the part where they're actually. Uh, doing the op where they're extracting the box uh, from from its owners, like all the all those cars crashing into each other, all these teams coming in, all this shooting. I'm going back in my head and I'm saying, "There's no way." If I knew this was the job, there's no way I would have done this for forty thousand. No, no way. way. This is no not way. a forty thousand dollar job. Not even in '98, and and we're guessing right. three years to make a film. So what? '95? No, no way. That never, not even close. You know, actually, I where was I? Um, was it was it the Spycraft documentary where they were talking about people that like double crossed? You know, and I'm reading a book about uh, counterintelligence. You talking about the Netflix series? Yeah, and I'm and I'm reading uh, To Catch a Spy by James M. Olson. The Art of Counterintelligence. I'm reading some of these stories and what these people who betrayed their country for, the money is like not that much. It's like 100K or 200K. Some of these are older stories. Like you're like, okay, well, the money makes sense, I guess. But like some of them you're like, there is no way. And and a lot of them had financial troubles. And I know intelligence agencies, one of the big big factors that are considered in like um like an applicant's like resume is their financial status mm-hmm. and like and and it seems to me that most you know like you, you go through the four recruitment things it's like you know money ideology compromise and ego it seems like money is like the easiest one but then compromise is even bigger. So you look at someone in debt and they need it. So now you have like the money and the compromise like thing involved. But like you look at the amount of money some of these guys were looking at. Like I, I know some of them were in exorbitant amounts of debt, but some of them weren't. And like, I mean, I know like intelligence isn't like the biggest paying job in the world, but it's still like a pretty good living comparatively. And I'm like confused. Like, I I don't really have a price for betrayal. Like, it, 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 and and if you wanted to try and, like, negotiate a price for me, like, some of these amounts are, like, minuscule. So, for this guy to get hired for 40K to risk his life, get it up to what you said, like, 200K, now all of a sudden, like... He's probably great. Like, like he's probably well, too, in it again, for the money again, already. My cal- my calculations. If you if you ha- if you have to buy every piece of logic the movie gives you, whatever's in the case has got to be worth uh, a million two. Yeah, right. And 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 it's got to be worth more than that if the Russian mafia wants it because they're going to sell it, right? So you're playing the negotiation game. I presume the IRA is planning on like you know, uh, tying up their loose ends so they don't care about the negotiated price, you know, would be my guess. I, I, 
the whole thing, it's just, I, I don't know. But you're right. I, I definitely wouldn't have taken that job for 40K. Which which now I should flag, because I had in my notes, I had been, uh, I was going to bring this up later, but uh, I'll mention it now then. So the 40K, like the IRA thing, you know, per person, 40K when whatever's in the case is worth at least a million two, uh, they're lowballing. And I think that was a bad idea. And that is my, I think, let's see, what did I say? Number two worst tradecraft, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, garbage in, garbage out. Pay pay the extra money. Pay the, pay the money to get an actual team that's worked together and that you can trust. I, I don't know. So we've danced around it a little bit, but let's uh, let's head right into the um, you know spoiler alert part of the movie, the twist at the end, <laughs> um, which is a cool one, um, but it's kind of also like not it's not necess- it's not integral to the plot. But just no. to be clear, uh, you know, uh, the idea that we're shown on screen is all these people are X intelligence. It turns out Sam is not ex CIA. He actually is still very much working for the CIA and he's infiltrated this mercenary operation because the guy on the IRA side that wants the box that is kind of manipulating, working everything through Deirdre so that, uh, you know, he can remain hidden. That's his real target. He wants that guy to have to come out of hiding Uh, or, or at least like that's, that's Sam's interest in, being involved in all this box nonsense. Now in the movie, it's Gregor's betrayal of the team that forces Seamus played by Jonathan price to come out of hiding. Uh, had to ask myself real quick, like what was the plan if that hadn't happened? Um, I guess, you know, I guess it was get the box and then follow Deirdre to wherever she takes the box. Right. Right, and with the dude he reaches out to in the car, I, I presume there's like a team, you know. Uh, oh, you're talking about it, Sam's friend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> the one he knew from high school, quote unquote. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. I think it's kind of cute uh, that they have a team, but wouldn't they be watching everything already? And if not, that means. Jonathan Price and Deidre have like the best like counter surveillance running. Um, yeah, and especially you're you're often down on uh, people flying solo. Sam is very close to flying solo in this movie, and he there probably should have been more of a presence like around him, a support staff uh, kind of thing. Well, um, with that guy, it seems like he probably did. He just didn't want that to come out so that's some more counter surveillance like plus points um and i think things would have worked out better for gregor as well if he had uh you know recruited maybe some of his other ex-kgb buddies to have, well, wait a minute how come back? nobody was watching gregor what do you mean wait hold on hold on this is the big hole in the story or i guess in the tradecraft if the IRA is running like stellar counterintelligence, they got to be watching everybody on the team. I would have, right? Well, especially you said, with the type of. I think you know you you mentioned before like maybe they're short on manpower. It's like you got to pick one or the other. They're either short on manpower or they're not, right? 
I mean, they have they have people out there doing the surveillance. We don't get to see that, but you know, all these photographs she's getting, you know, all this intelligence that she's collecting. Uh, you know, right. she's not out there doing it all by herself. So these unseen IRA guys are are involved and could have been involved in in the op. I do, I, I don't see why. I don't want to relitigate that, but uh, right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what watching Gregor like watching him when. Just because when he steals the box, somebody should have been on him. And if Sam, play, you know, our Robert De Niro character, has a whole team of CIA. Right. Why is nobody watching Gregor? Right. Because the IRA, we know that, I, I mean, we can definitely infer for sure. I'm 100% positive that there are IRA operatives out there collecting this intelligence about the op in advance of it. Where did they go? Right. Where did they go? Yeah. Did they just, are they not watching when the op actually goes down? Right. Do they and, just, and, you know, Deirdre makes, has no contact with them after that. Um, you know, she had another guy in the warehouse. Uh, let's go ahead and jump up to this. You know, like there's a part where Sam is adamant. We need two more guys. This op cannot be done without two more guys. And he clearly knows what he's talking about. And and right. you, you have to believe that she believes him. Well, you, you know, she says, there are no other guys. Well, there fucking are. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, right? I saw yeah. one of them. I saw one of them. When you first got to the warehouse, you know, he's just like cracking his knuckles. He doesn't get any lines or whatever, but he's just like a heavy guy that just is there to like make, you know, silently say like, Hey, no funny business. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I'm going to adjust my worst trade craft list right now. I'm, I'm going to say my worst trade craft. Number three, which you just brought up is not bringing more guys. And if you got the money, unless the IRA is planning on tying up their loose ends, quote unquote, you know, uh, let's say they have the money, right? Why aren't they bringing more guys? That's going to be my worst tradecraft number three, okay? And my worst tradecraft number two is why is nobody watching Gregor? Mm -hmm. You have the Russian mafia. But, well, okay, so they're the ones in the deal, so that makes sense, right? Okay, you have the CIA and the IRA with operatives apparently watching everywhere, but no one is watching Gregor, and he just slips under. But, like, I understand how someone can fall off the radar, right? but not in the middle of the op, right? This is the big moment. And the way that he slips out, there's a huge shootout in the middle of the street. Why is nobody I'm, – I'm making, I'm making that my worst trade graph number, number two. I'm, I'm making my adjustments now. Okay. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really I'm, – like this kind of just came off the cuff talking about this. Like somebody should have been watching them. Uh, sorry. For my excitement, I'm 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 really irritated about this. Yeah, there's 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 holes in the there's holes in the in the in the plaster of uh, of this thing for sure. Um, but again, it's like a magic act. It really does do a great job. I mean, let's. I mean, especially when we start getting really critical. I want to jump in and say it. I still really fucking love this movie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm still enjoying the magic act, even if I can see like like the misdirection things and the. You know, and I can see the the lady's legs sticking out from the 
the other end of the box where she supposedly got chopped in half or whatever the fuck I'm trying to explain there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll jump. I'll I'll go to okay. So, but we were talking about Sam and and Sam's, uh, you know, got a got an actual hidden. He's got a hidden agenda, which right. we're not privy to as the audience. We'll only find out at the very end of the movie. Um, thinking through to how this works and I like to, you know, think it through. So let's start thinking too. do his decisions actually make sense. If you're watching it again and you know, the end of the movie, uh, I already flagged. I think negotiating the pay raise was a little hardball, uh, given mm-hmm. that we know that, um, how did he get involved in this? I guess he must've found out about the box mission somehow and told the, uh, the man in the wheelchair, which is the, the, way that they all refer to the recruiter that pulled all these disparate people. He must have told him, uh, like, you know, how does Sam actually get involved here? Uh, He has to have found out about the mission and sent out feelers, including the man in the wheelchair and said, Hey, if the IRA come around looking for mercenaries, tell him that one of them that you highly recommend is this ex CIA Mm -hmm. agent, which is me. Right. <laughs> um, well, the, Wiki tells us before you go. Before you go, oh, yeah. Wiki tells us that the 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 or actually, I think this was IMDb trivia. Um, the man in the wheelchair is most likely a reference to the Born Identity, the book, not the movie, uh, in which there is a prominent character who was a mercenary broker. So that's probably just a little like. Spy. Oh, well, that's what I was about to kind of bring up. Spy like, oh. enthusiast, spy fiction enthusiast, Easter egg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a really nice Easter egg. You're not. That's an interesting job or a business to run. Could you imagine like running that business, especially like in a wheelchair? Unless like he's just like fainting the wheelchair. But like, yeah, I just have connects and intelligence. I know people that get the job done. Sure. For a price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be an interesting business, I guess. <laughs> Should it be a lot of money? But yeah, I just I just wanted to cycle in and, and do at least a tiny bit of thinking on like how Sam uh, nestled himself in to this operation, and uh, I guess that's that's how you would do that. Um, another thing, as now an, a positive spy points note that I have for the movie is that once you know the ending, when you're rewatching it, all of Sam's persistent questions now have much greater meaning, mm-hmm. you know, like on the surface, on your first watch, you're just watching him just, you know, do his due diligence. I never walk into a situation. I don't know how to walk out of, you know, right. so how many guys, who's your boss? How right. are we getting, how are we getting out of here? Forgive me. I like to work it backwards. You know, like he really wants to know, like, where is Deirdre going to, because he doesn't know Gregor's going to betray them. Um, so his plan must be like at the extraction. Where are you going with the box after the op? <laughs> and he's asking it in the right way where it seems it. I don't know. Have I talked about it enough? It's just like there's a double meaning to his interrogate his interrogative approach to the op. He's gathering information, which is something we love. And that's my number two best tradecraft of the movie. 
And he actually asks her, who's your handler a couple times? Uh-huh. He's, he's constantly he's prodding climb. around on that. Yeah. What about this? We learn later that uh, the CIA can track cell phone calls. Maybe that was, uh, you know, something they should have done when he negotiated the pay raise, knowing that that would trigger her to need to call Seamus to get approval oh. for that. Why didn't they yeah, chase? But- why didn't? Why weren't they Johnny on the spot tracing that call? And then boom, you got Seamus. Fuck this box. I'm out of here. Well, maybe maybe they did, and since the IRA is running like impeccable, like uh, counter counter surveillance, you know they couldn't get him. Uh, that is a good point, though. How were they not able to spot that? That's interesting. Well, I mean, if they hired Gregor to begin with, like they probably know about this tech anyway, so the IRA would probably know not to have the person of importance like on the phone and that's why you have the brush pass on the escalator that's where i wanted to go next what do, what do we got on that this is where this is where jonathan price as seamus first appears in the movie dj's kind of going up an escalator and then jonathan price just kind of shows up on screen and both of us were like oh it's jonathan price very exciting you know and and he kind of just like hands her an envelope you know type of thing. Well, they trade. I like the fact they trade envelopes. Like she's, you know, he doesn't just give her an envelope. They've got identical like manila folder kind of things or not manila folders, but whatever those brown envelopes are, the big, you know, type that you can put typing paper sized paper into blah, blah, blah. Um, You know, that they kind of, they kind of slip a little trade, which I liked as plus five points. I didn't like, the um, I didn't like them having the conversation that they have on this super crowded escalator. I understand that, you know, escalators, elevators, everyone is like working overtime on trying to pretend they aren't surrounded by a bunch of other people and, and studiously not paying attention to other people yeah. or talking to them <laughs> or listening right. in on their conversations. But I would give it some minus five points too for having the conversation that they have right there. Yeah. If I'd been on that escalator and I heard that, I would be like, I think I should probably call someone about this. <laughs> right. Uh, um, well, I also marked this as like my number three best trade craft. Uh, the, just keeping the distance. And so keeping Jonathan Price a secret is a really big deal. I presume he's a high value target. Uh huh. Um, so even though they presume this team is a group of mercenaries, they're still protecting Jonathan Price's character. He's probably like high up on the IRA train. He might even be like the head or something. Uh, uh, well, at the end, and it might just be a um, uh, a way of not pissing anybody off in real life. Uh, you know, um, or or like being seen as choosing sides. But uh, at the very end of the movie, the IRA says that Seamus was like a rogue agent. Like they don't claim him. Oh, I see. Um, when he gets killed. But that could be any number of things. It could be the story trying to, trying to gloss something over. It could be the movie trying to gloss something over. But... I really do agree that this is good tradecraft and good storytelling. You know, this element of this guy that needs to, uh, 
you know, manage, manage the operation from a distance, only have yeah. one point of contact, not have right. the face seen. Yeah. So yeah, he's, he's definitely a high priority target. He's like, gotta be on like the global, like most wanted list or something. Right. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's our, I don't know. That's our setup of our situation. You want to talk about the arms deal? They, they get there uh, to make the deal, and there's only, like, half the weapons there. Um, and so, you know, obviously this is going to trigger some concerns for veterans. Sean Bean is just like, no, 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 let's do the job. Let's get through it, you know. Um, but one thing was weird was uh, Robert De Niro spotted a sniper on the bridge and just started shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if like, you know, as someone experienced would have recognized the shot was about to be fired, but it could just mean the sniper was there for cover. Right. I don't, I mean, I, I would have liked if I was on our team, I would have liked to have a sniper in position, not because I'm planning on double crossing the deal, but just Mm -hmm. in case the other side decides for a double cross. So yeah. I'm going with I'm going with minus points on that. Um and when they, you know, and you know, the arms dealers, well also I don't like I don't know. I it, it's still not clear to me who set up this deal, this transaction. Uh Jean Renault is supposed to be the fixer of the team, you know. He says if it's in Paris, I can get it, even specialized equipment. He should know people that he can trust to get them what they need. Um, But in the way it's, the way it's done, we never actually get clarity on who negotiated this transaction in the first place. It could have been Sean Bean because supposedly he's the weapons guy, but we also find out he's kind of only half competent at best. Right. Right. (laughs) It, It could have been the IRA who's just, you know, maybe being sloppy, like, and well, it's gotta be him. Cause he's the one that asked for the grocery list from everybody. <clears throat> Who? Renault? No, Sean Bean. He's like, what do you guys need? And he was like, yeah, uh, Robert De Niro's like, I'll take a 1911. You know, there's that whole scene where like, he's kind of taking down a grocery list for what everybody wants. So it was, it was, it was probably him. And the fact that he was inexperienced with, I thought it was, like, I thought it was Renault personally and that's also backed up by the fact that when sean bean first notices it's not all here that's the first person he he like calls up is uh i think his name is vincent in this vincent or victor because he's i think he's victor in sean john renault is who i'm talking about i think he was victor in la femme nikita and vincent in this movie yeah i'm 100 sure that's right but that's the person he calls over he says hey vincent vincent it's not all right. here um, oh, okay. Yeah, then it is probably him. So, yeah, again, like, it, it's shaky because I feel like Jean Renault, it, he's at least presenting himself as someone that can get anything mm-hmm. if it's in Paris. You know, even right. the, spe- the supposedly very specialized equipment that Gregor requires. Uh, he should have been able to negotiate a, a safe arms transaction, I think. 
and also a little bit of minus logic points when they get out of there, you know, and, and Sean Bean is like, woohoo, woohoo, woohoo. That's the way we do it. We kept the money. We got the stuff. Well, uh, actually, you only got half of the stuff, right? You know what? Because they didn't actually, have time to go. They When the cops showed up, they didn't have time to go back. And, and besides, like, if the arms dealers had been you know, they're planning this betrayal in the first place. Like they probably didn't even bring the other half of the stuff. Yeah. And it, the whole thing was like planned out as an ambush to begin with. They, they probably didn't have the rest of it. So going down that alley, you know, this goes back to the whole thing about, you know, experience, you know, uh, Sean Bean just wants to run in and get the stuff. And Robert De Niro's like, no, let's not. And so I, I wanted to mark my spy points on this, just like for bringing someone that inexperienced along. Like I'm not sure that they were really that low on people. I actually want to. I actually want to run backwards and and uh, preemptively firing on the sniper. If you think about it, there's no direct evidence in the movie that the arms dealers were actually planning a double cross here. That's true. I mean, it could have been they really were just being cautious and they had the other half of the stuff and they were negotiating in good faith and they just had a little bit of insurance in case you guys turn out to be a bunch of cowboys because we've never fucking heard of you. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> they get through the arms deal. De Niro's still, like, uh, you know, wants more information, you know, besides and in addition to what Deirdre's invisible ninja army of surveillance people <laughs> are providing <laughs> you, you like this part when they go to the villa uh, and, and you had you, your, your comment comes first. The hotel was fantastic. Um, and uh, she's all nervous and he's like, just relax. We're a couple having an enjoyable time. They sitting in the lobby drinking coffee and I uh, wanted to, like, mark this as my number two best tradecraft was just Sam's acting normal. And this goes out throughout the whole film. Like, every moment where he has to play the part, like, you get to watch an actor acting like someone acting. <laughs> right. You know, like, he's acting like an intelligence agent acting. And the acting isn't, like, action for the screen. It's acting for like, hey, I'm just a guy here. And I love like every little detail and the way his mannerisms operate, like when he drinks coffee, when he's just reading a newspaper. Like usually in like spy films, especially the old ones, there's always like that 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 very like, you know, like clear image of just a spy reading a newspaper. You know what I mean? And you see the like frame or like just the shot, and it's like, oh, it's a spy reading a newspaper. There's a lot of moments where I just see Robert De Niro playing a spy, actually looking like a normal person. And I really like just the way he drinks his coffee. <laughs> right. The way yeah, he yeah. walks, the way he's like looking around. When they're when they're like, coming up, when they're coming up, it's a really nice contrast. When you mm -hmm. look at him next to, when you look at Natasha McElhoney next to him, I mean, it's possible that she just looks nervous because she's never done this kind of thing of like trying to look normal. But I like to think it's just that she's never really been comfortable in heels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, 
Like she seems yeah, like she does not seem like a heel wearing person. You know, she's all gussied up, you know, with this hairstyle and nice clothes and and yeah, she she comes across in the movie as much more of a combat boots kind of kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. so I thought her acting, you know, especially what you're talking about is like, you know, it's the contrast that makes mm-hmm. that little bit it's it's very short but that little bit like really nice and and also just you know just more points to McElhoney I I I think she's fucking perfect in this movie she's not she's obviously not like you know our top shelf actor Uh even in this cast but she's rising to the occasion I think oh absolutely I think she did a great job you know I think when we were talking about it just at the the preface of you know, like when we were talking about just the film by itself, like I think everybody did a great job. Um, yeah, like, I'd love for someone to yell at me if if they think her Irish accent is not as good as I think it is. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. I, I, drop I us, drop us a line. Yeah, <laughs> but this is what leads up to our favorite moment of the whole film. It's not just our favorite moment. This is, you know, besides the car chase, I think this is the this is the piece that that everybody remembers about this movie. Obviously we're talking about the part where he gets the, the photographs, the photographs. Yeah. So, you know, they're in the lounge and uh, she's like, Oh, they're coming. He gets up and walks with her very tourist looking, you know, he goes out, he sets up like a sign, you know, like uh, here's the valet, you know, like one of those metal, kind of stand-up signs and he leans it up against a van that is obviously going to leave very shortly then ask the bellhop to kind of like take pictures of him and Deidre like oh you know take a picture of me and my wife please and then he hands the camera get the to the background. get the background <laughs> oh, no before that no but before that before the background right the guys that they're targeting or trying to get info on are still walking right uh, through the lobby, he's out in the front, and he hands the guy the camera, and he's like, "Yeah, please take a picture of us. Look, it's easy. Oh, right, yeah. Take the picture, like you know, it's these old film cameras, and it was like a nice one, like one of those like Nikon type. Like if you're a photographer, you probably have these like seeing these cameras. You gotta hit the switch, push the button, hit the switch. But and so he puts it in the guy's hand. He's hitting the switch, pushing the button." getting shots of the guys walking through the, 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 the lounge. Then when they get outside, he then times it. So he's like, take a picture of us. He's like, get the background, get the background. So he gets a picture of, you know, him and her, but he's trying to get the shot of the guys behind them, you know? And he's like, you know what? Let me, let me take a picture of you and my wife, you know? Haha, <laughs> give us a smile. He's taking a picture. And the reason why he's trying to get the shot is because when the van drives away with the sign leaning up against it, the sign drops and makes a loud noise. So all the guards around their target jump to try and cover him so he could get a shot of what kind of like team is running on their target. How many people are running, you know, watching them? How quick are the bodyguards? Who's doing what? Where? Like, it was so well played out the whole moment from just chilling in the lounge to, like, 
getting the shots, you know, it, it was great. And so uh, this made both of our number one best trade craft was uh, the photography scene. Mm-hmm. It's, seriously, if you've never seen this film, go back and watch this film just for that moment. It was it was great. With a like, tiny a- quibble, uh, yeah. you know, your CIA, go ahead and spring for color film. When they when they actually uh, cut to they're they're looking at the photographs they're in black and white oh, they're yeah. in black and white which is obviously for just like I don't know a spy movie feel reason <laughs> right but uh, yeah you could you could you could do you could put some color you could yeah put color film in that bitch yeah you know or at least well I think isn't like all film color film it's just how you uh, expose it or something. No, I no, I don't know enough no, about no, that. No, that's no, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, I'm ninety five percent sure. Um, you know, uh, but initially too, when he's like, you know, like you said, like when he's uh, getting the pictures, like basically like from the hip as he's yeah. pretending to demonstrate. Uh, yeah, you know, there's a there's a whole art uh, uh, of you know it, and it it requires a lot of practice and experience to take candid photographs to like you know to be in a crowd situation you know usually like most of our experience with cameras like okay everyone line up everyone see hyper aware of the fact that there's a camera involved and uh it actually it actually takes it's it's there's an art to taking photographs uh of you know real like naturalistic photographs of people that don't know that they're being photographed because you get an entirely different result out of that. Well, and it's also the art to the trade craft, you know, and you, you keep bringing up that this film is a magic show and just making everything smooth and realistic, you know, from every moment of him in this photography scene, like everything checks out, you know what I mean? It's, it's masterful. Yeah, it's one of the. I mean, it's. I would say it's. It's. I mean, it's not just our best tradecraft of this film. I think it would rate very highly if we were to compile. If we were to go back through our number ones of all our movies, I think this one easily is probably in the top five. It's pretty. Yeah. Fucking, it's pretty fucking genius. Right. I'm. I'm a little concerned with the target's bodyguard team. Somebody should have noticed that pictures were being taken. Uh, it all makes sense, but like I, I still would have been like, "There's a camera." It's such a well thought out scene. Like I, I, I don't, I don't really want to put it to the third degree like we normally do because it, it just works out so well. I, I really loved it, every minute of it. Moving on, she gets the information that uh, you know the the deal isn't going to happen today. It's going to happen tomorrow. So it's the last night before the op. They've all. Uh, been preparing for. Uh, I like not just because it looks cool, but you know, um, uh, driver guy is uh, spray painting, blacking out the windows only on the last night before the op. Yeah, which I like, and I'll give it plus five points because you know, if you blacked them out, out as soon as you reached the safe house, then maybe someone would have noticed and said, "Hey, what the fuck." But it's it's already it's already nighttime, I think, yeah. and and you know this is our, our last thing. It's it's good. It's it's good timing. 
he still wants more information. Sam does uh, for, like we said, multifaceted reasons. When he says he's going to go for one last look at the villa that they, the, our guys with the case retreated to, she has to come with him, right? Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Because this would be a, that would have been like, for instance, if he was a traitor, if he was a Gregor, for instance, right. in this situation, that would have been a perfect opportunity for him to go and tell the guys with the case, like, hey, we know everything and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, uh, she's really got to come with him. I don't think we get anything out of that except the gratuitous kiss. I mean, we get the, you know, I remember. This is the villa moment I really liked. Okay. That I thought we were talking about earlier, uh, where a car's coming by, so he kisses her. Uh, but y- your comment about the gratuitous kiss, this is when she's like, I'm really wanting to kiss him. And um, I'm not sure it's that gratuitous. I think she might have been trying to, like, play him because she doesn't show up at the end, you know, when he's at the coffee shop and uh, Jean Renault's like, she's not coming. She can't come. You know, like, we, we really feel like Robert De Niro wants to, like, see her show up. He he wanted the real, the real romance, I guess. Or at least that's what I kind of felt the film wanted us to yeah, feel. Yeah, the initial script didn't have that in it. In fact, like a, a script doc, or I don't know, I don't want to, uh, maybe a script doctor is uh, is a demeaning term. But uh, there's, there's two, there's an original script and then there's another guy that came in. And one of the things he was brought in to do was specifically to add a love interest. And I think he did it very clunkily. Uh, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like the fact like De Niro's been, I mean, sure. Very nice girls can fall for guys based on very shitty behavior, but I, I just kind of cringe a little on the fact that like, I mean, De Niro's really been kind of a dick to her. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. They didn't. They didn't share a moment. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't make a connection. Uh, it's just like him being a dick and constantly telling her and showing her and demonstrating that he's better than her and and right. more than she does. And then that's a reason for her to say like, "Oh yeah, yep, yep, I want to kiss you." Uh, don't like it. Except, well, I mean, I don't like it on that level. I love it on watching the movie level because I get to make so many jokes about Robert De Niro, uh, you know, being like, I don't know, this fucking, it makes no sense, but that's why I like it, that he acts like this fucking puppy dog about yeah. like, like, like want, you know, like at the end of the movie, like hoping that she'll show up. By the way, we're going to talk about some alternate endings. Oh. When we get there, that, that are that are very interesting uh, on this topic. Yeah, I'm hoping you didn't read ahead that far because uh, I'm going to be really looking forward to your reaction of that. Yeah. Uh, quick minus spy points. Get some flesh colored earpieces, right? You people, I don't think your kiss is going to cover you with uh, these bright white earpieces. Uh, I guess we needed to see it as an audience. I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on the earpieces. I think. But you had a good point. Like these days, you can totally get away with it because now we have earbuds. Right. Oh yeah, those Apple Airs. We're we're just both in the car listening to our own radio. Which are not flesh colored, probably because of branding purposes. You want right. people to see someone with some cool earbuds. Yeah. That is it for part one of our discussion. We have done as much preparation as we can for the op. And next week, we'll come back to discuss how it all goes down. Given that there is still over an hour of runtime remaining at this point, we might guess that it doesn't go smoothly. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you can help us out and give us some feedback, we're always trying to improve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.